Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Beata Sanctum is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders past and present. Good plan. Good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I'll be Meatloaf if you be J-Lo. <laughs> My name is Emma Race and I am joined as always by my football feasting finals friends and sanctum siblings. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hi, Nicole Hayes. Hi, I'm Julia Kiera. Hello, I'm Lucy Race. Uh, the weekend's prelims were an absolute ride. And before we get started, I really think we need to put a warning on this podcast for any yes. cats and pear fans, because I think it would have been a really, really tough weekend for supporters of both of those teams. No one saw those two matches rolling out the way that they did with the score lines that they did. And actually, I looked back at what had been predicted because I know that yesterday's news is the chip wrapper of the day after all whatever how do you how do you wrap chips in the internet but anyway i looked back and most people had it that the d's and port would both win by a margin of about 15 points or so so nobody really predicted this d's 125 cats 42 the d's really kind of neutered the cats with the cats only having a run at it really in the second quarter but the d's kicked away in the third and was all over by three quarter time what was your highlights from that game i was thinking about you through that game emma because you're not a huge fan of third quarters (laughs) and max gorn really created quite something in that third quarter i was wondering if you're awake did you stay awake to watch it (laughs) I did stay awake, but I reckon me and all of the Cats supporters are probably on the same page now. They probably hate third quarters as well. So (laughs) maybe my my dislike of the third quarter will be gaining some momentum. It was an unbelievable third quarter. It was just coming out of the centre so quickly and there was just no stemming that. Nicole, were you watching the game? (laughs) I was. And In that bombardment of goals, there was the standout was Max Gorn, four goals in seven minutes. He did his personal best of five goals. It was just such a great captain's game. He kicked one from the boundary. He kicked it, what, a belter from outside 50. He did another one on the run. He basically managed to ping one from every angle. And he, I mean, he was just having fun by the end of it, wasn't he? But my favourite part of that whole thing, apart from this extraordinary character who's just so much fun to, to watch, is afterwards he was being interviewed and it's a pretty amazing moment for them, the history of Melbourne getting into a grand final and how hard they fought and how close they've been in the past. As soon as the game finished, he said his eyes went immediately to the players on the bench who all streamed onto the field and he saw Nathan Jones and he saw Magic Door, all players that weren't able to participate 
And he said he felt this enormous sense of responsibility to be able to deliver. And, you know, in that moment where he could have been gleeful and celebratory, he he just recognised the incredible privilege that he has as the leader of this club. And his show of humility and his general sense that everyone had to leave families at home, great sacrifices were made, that that was uppermost in his mind after his probably best game ever. I just think that's such a testament to his character and I can't wait to see what he does next week. I love that you said he did a PB. It's not something that we traditionally say in footy, (laughs) but I think that we should actually, we should bring it in as the Gorn rule, Lucy. Well, I have seen, you know, there are some people who follow football via statistics and things like champion data and it's not something, it's not a way that I access football. But I did see that Max Gorn, his third quarter was the best individual quarter in a final in a decade. So it really was good. (laughs) I saw some people querying on Twitter and I really loved this. It was actually from footballers saying, what is he? Is he a ruck? Is he a forward? Is he a (laughs) mid? Is he a back? What is he? Julia, were you watching Max Gorn just thinking this man can do anything? Yeah, I think I literally said Ruck shouldn't be able to do that. Where there's one where he was uh, the key forward, the ball was kicked in, it was touched off the boot. Clearly the the people on the ground didn't realise, but he did. He runs onto it, marks it, curves around and does this huge snap from about 40 and Ruck shouldn't do that. So he's just the every player. He's the triple, quadruple threat. Can we use any more terms from other (laughs) industries to describe him? (laughs) Well, I've got one. It was like watching someone who's really good at billiards and I don't know whether I'm meant to call it billiards or snooker when they're like red ball in the corner pocket, like moving around the whole ground, just going like, I'll do one over here. I'll do one over my head. I'll do it through my legs now. I've got one for one. I've got one for all seasons. It was unbelievable. And we haven't touched on the fairy tale of Ben Brown, Nicole, that he was let go from North Melbourne. And I think that would have been a very painful time for him and to watch this great man and you feel so much love for him because we know he's such a decent human that when a good guy like that gets this fairy tale I don't know I feel kind of validated well it's the fairy tale thing isn't it the the narratives that we're always looking for in our football is when good guys win and the reality is he played he kicked a couple of goals he had a hand in several others he played a really solid team game he was among their best But just knowing that he espouses all of these great ideals and then to see him also play so well at the elite level and now he's going to be in a grand final. You just could not write it better, could you? Well, you think that you can't write it better and and no one anticipated that the following night would be given a a run for its money. Lucy called it the hold my beer game because it's a bit Buckman Turner overdrive. You ain't seen nothing yet. And even with the Trelaw moment that he has been unceremoniously moved on from Collingwood and then now he will get to do a Ben Brown and play in the grand final. The dogs have been on the road while Port have been tucked up in their beds dreaming of a home ground advantage all this time but the dogs were just so fierce and they kicked more in their first quarter than Port ended up kicking for the entire game and there's no Lee Matthews equivalent rule for that and if there were I guess it would be called the you're up shit creek rule. (laughs) What were your favourite things out of the Port Bulldogs game? Well you touched on it already Emma I just love the Adam Trelaw story that he had a great first final against Essendon a bit quieter the next week and got a bit of a pile on from the spectators fandom commentators out there writing him off and then he came back and had an excellent game kicked a goal over 20 
many possessions, set up a few. And Nicole already touched on the idea that maybe nice guys don't finish last this season. And there is something really great about Adam's story and what he's done. Very publicised. Him and his partner have been living apart for the season so that they can both pursue their sports at the elite level. And that was part of the reason that he was moved on from Collingwood, that it, perhaps he, he wouldn't be able to handle that. And to, to then see that he gets to go to a club that's absolutely embraced him. He's had a really good season. He unfortunately had a bit of an injury, but he's come back at the right time, had a great prelim, and now he gets to play in a grand final. And you look at the Ben Brown decision from last year and you look at Adam Trelaw and you go, geez, it's tough to be a list manager sometimes. <laughs> Lucy, what was your highlight? A bit like you, Emma. I I'd really thought that it would be the closer game, the Bulldogs-Port game, but I think I turned to my husband at about the 15-minute mark of the first quarter and said, I can't see Port coming back from this. It really seemed ridiculous to call it in the first quarter, but I think it was done. To think that there'd been a whole lot of chat beforehand that the Bulldogs hadn't had a chance to train, which is a whole other conversation. I think they'd gone Melbourne to Launceston to Brisbane to Perth to Adelaide to Perth, and then they wouldn't let them out to train seemed kind of ridiculous. But maybe if they'd trained, they wouldn't have been as good. I kept going back to the week before where, but for that chase of Taylor Duray, they're not there. What's going to be interesting is that both of those game styles are really similar, Bulldogs and Ds. I found the games to almost be they were kind of carbon copies of each other. And it makes me feel like the grand final is going to be Batman v Superman. Because <laughs> to be honest, like I don't really know the difference between Batman and Superman. Well, one actually has superpowers, so that's immediately not fair. <laughs> okay, so which one's that? And when Max Gone wears those red boots, he looks like Superman. <laughs> he does, little red legs. Nicole, what were your highlights from the poor dogs game? How can you go past Bailey Smith, that hair? <laughs> but also four goals and just he just was in underneath everything. You've got the Bont kicking magnificent goals, just the leadership right across the base. I think what is the most impressive thing about that was the speed and there's so much skill and so much pace for the dogs and the demons. It's going to make for such an exciting game next week. It's going to be hard to to pick a winner and we're lucky that we've got an extra few days given that we've got this bye weekend coming up. But I'd like to just bring back something that we haven't talked about much, and that is Omen Watch. <laughs> we were contacted by someone on Twitter, Len Lambrellis, who alerted us to the fact that the US Open Women's Finals might be an indicator of this game because Layla Fernandez wore red, white and blue, while Emily Raducanu wore red and navy, and it was red and navy that won. Another great storyline here is that that it's going to be two women presidents of these two clubs going up against each other in the grand final. So Kate Roffey is the president of the Melbourne Football Club and Kylie Watson-Wheeler is the president of the Western Bulldogs. It's an extraordinary situation given that the outgoing premiers also have a woman president and the first woman president. It's an extraordinary and compelling case for having women at the top of the boardroom table. I mean, that's a champion data stat you can't ignore, right? Can't argue with stats. <laughs> Are we ready to roll up our sleeves and melee, ladies? Can I get a hell yeah? Hell yeah. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> I wanted to kick it off this week because there's been this discourse that has emerged and there's always storylines that come out 
pre-grand final about who's owed and who hasn't had a premiership for a long time and everything. But the thing that I have noticed the most is this real upstairs, downstairs, I'm going to call it the Downton Abbey of football, (laughs) where there's this real conversation around the dogs being the servants, the serfs, the workers going up against the Ds who are high society and all moneyed and the landlords we've seen. And, And it's a really funny thing to think about the stereotyping and the stories we tell ourselves. My question to you all is, are these stories necessary? Are these stories the stories of the history of our game? Are are they important tropes for us to continue with? Because what we know is that players come from everywhere now. And once was a North Melbourne player, is now a Melbourne player. And and the Western suburbs are now actually quite gentrified. And any of these players could play for any team. So what are your thoughts on these tropes? And do they play a role in the myth and the mystery around the game? Nicole, I'll come to you first about your opinion, (laughs) given you're a storyteller by trade. Look, I love that stuff. I really do. Because, I mean, it's fiction, basically. It's Anyone who's had a coffee in Yarraville knows that this is not a working class suburb anymore. But when you think about the fact that, so it's not relevant to the players, as you mentioned, because they're from all over and many of them don't even know the history of their clubs. What it's relevant for are the fans and the supporters. When you are, we barrack for our teams, but we're really barracking for the colours, aren't we? We commit to the jumper in many ways. And that's the history. That's the storytelling that's really interesting and, and why we love the underdog story as a winner. And everybody wants to be the underdog, which makes it a bit hard for Melbourne in most situations, given the the, the snowfields, the chalet and the and the wine and cheese in the in the MCC. But it just helps us connect, I think, and to maintain a connection with these clubs, which don't look anything like what they did when they started. Would it blow your mind if I told you that one of these teams was once called the Prince Imperials? <laughs> and it, it wasn't the D's. Was it named the- after a pub? It was named after <laughs> Napoleon. <laughs> Can you believe it? And the Western Bulldogs have also been known as Footscray. They've been known as the Bone Mill Fellows, which is pretty working class, and the Saltwater Lads. And for a time, they're also called the Tricolors. The, the Ds have been known as the Red Legs, and previously also as the Fuchsias. I go for the Mayblooms, so I don't know how I missed that <laughs> horticultural reference in football, Lucy. I don't mind some of the stereotypes, but I don't like it if it gets in the way of people feeling like there's a place for them in their club or if if it makes people feel a little bit excluded. And I also challenge the notion that you can really ever come up with some homogenous idea of what a football club's supporter base actually is and all of their characteristics. And even to say that they can be tied to the suburb of that club, would it surprise you to learn that there are more Hawthorne supporters that live in Croydon than live in Hawthorne. The demographics change over time. And I think stereotypes can be can be fun and they can be funny, but they can also be exclusionary. And something that I've been thinking a lot about is what happens when, because a lot of these stereotypes are based on history and are based on time when we only had men playing in those jumpers. With AFLW, we have very different feelings about clubs and we have very different feelings when we're watching, say, the women's team from Collingwood play as opposed to the men's team from Collingwood. I feel like clubs themselves, like the in and outs of the club and who the players really are, 
is ultimately kind of unknowable as a fan. Like you, you as much as you feel like you want to understand who these players are and you've got a connection with them and you've got a connection with the club, the stories are much more accessible and the stories that we tell ourselves of the working class Bulldogs. I, I, when I think of Carlton, I do think of Ligon Street and it is a story that that club kind of tells itself again. So that is can be the access point for a fan because I think that really we don't know what they're like on the inside. We just don't. We can't know it. We're separated from it. So those are the ways that we can attach some meaning to our support of those clubs is that we we buy into that story. But it's an interesting one with the women's teams because I feel like the attachment, because the history is so much newer, the attachment is more to the personnel. Julia, you've been in a footy club, embedded, played, coached in a footy club that people have a concept and a, and a story they tell themselves about about your club, the Darabin Falcons. Does it always match up with what your experience is of being a Darabin Falcon with what people say about the Darabin Falcons? That's an interesting question, Emma, and my understanding of this has evolved over time. I do think the Falcons have a very strong perception of who we are in our mission. You know, we are a club with a mission and values and we try and articulate that and we try and put it into practice. When I have conversations with people from other clubs about their perception of the Falcons and I, over the last few years, have had this realisation that perhaps people in other clubs thought we were a bit (laughs) (laughs) self-important because we did speak about values and mission and they were like, shut up, just my (laughs) footy. And just that like perhaps we were just a bit like that we were perhaps a bit like intellectual and earnest and self-important and that hang on a minute, that sounds like the hallmarks <laughs> of the centum. <laughs> and that, that perhaps those qualities were not as charming from the outside <laughs> as we thought they were from the inside. Um oh. so that's my recent realization. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. I find it really interesting when clubs reset their values and and clubs have had to. When Fitzroy moved to Queensland, then they had to they had to reassess who they were and what history they take with them. Dare I say, talk about North Melbourne going to Tassie, that they will hang on to Shinbona Spirit and they'll say Shinbona Spirit lives at Arden Street and that's where it lives. And and you know, Hawthorne would do the same thing, even though we haven't been at Glen Ferry for a very long time and Waverley's not really our spiritual home and eventually we'll end up in Dingley. But it's the story that we tell ourselves, I think, to romanticise and to to put meaning into what is sport. And it's interesting coming up to the grand final because the stories we tell ourselves, there are only two clubs that make it to that final match of the year. So for everybody else, we all need to find a team that we're going to back and we all want to be involved in that. So when we're we're approaching that game, we're all deciding who we're going to jump on. And it's interesting seeing a whole lot of discourse about which you alluded to at the start, Em, are people going to go for the landlords or the tenants or, you know, whatever way people decide to present Melbourne and Footscray. And Footscray. Are you laughing that I called them Footscray? (laughs) But you can. I love Footscray. I love it too. But I love it. Like there are so many things that where it doesn't always, you know, match up because I know lots of Melbourne supporters who don't fit the mould of what people think a Melbourne supporter is and the same for the Bulldogs. And 
I looked into a little bit of research. This is from the Roy Morgan Research Company from 2017. You would be surprised to find that the team with the highest percentage of supporters who attend matches is actually Melbourne, and that is ahead of Richmond. So there's discourse about Melbourne supporters aren't there, they're not at the game, they've gone to the snow, snow or they don't <laughs> want to watch their team lose or all of these sorts mm. of stories. But in 2017, Melbourne is actually the club that had the highest percentage of supporters who attend matches. It'll be interesting to see if these things evolve over time. Did Roy Morgan also demonstrate the fact that I've never drunk Chardonnay in my life? Yes, I can confirm that that is in fact (laughs) true. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Melissa Hickey and you're listening to The Outer Sanctum. There's so many people who are going to miss out on being at the grand final, not just Melbourne-based supporters who can't get to WA, but overseas supporters who would have traditionally flown home. Nicole, have you been watching all of the outpouring of this weird grief that people would be feeling that they're going to miss this moment? There are so many people, aren't there, who have waited their whole lives for this and they're not going to be able to get there. But I read a piece in Mianjin called My Heart Beats True, so you can guess who this is for. Megan Clement wrote it and she talked about the power of football for her as an entree to being accepted in Australian society. She migrated from England. She was a big round ball fan and came in 2000 and was taken along to a game and fell in love with the, the chaos and mayhem. She had no idea what was happening, which is a, a common story for newbies to the game, uh, but fell in love instantly. And, and she didn't know any of that history that we've been talking about at all. So for all those years, when she was living in Melbourne, she was, you know, a regular attendant, but then, you know, moved overseas and wasn't able to come back as a result of all the COVID restrictions and disengaged from the game completely, wasn't even watching online or, uh, you know, even keeping up with the results. And so much of that was about how it stopped representing to her the, the country she wanted to believe in or the idea of the country that she wanted to believe in. What it made me think about was how football and sport generally has been always this sort of dual edged sword where there it is it does have that ability to bring people in and to welcome people and as you know lots of migrant stories uh talk about adopting a team to be accepted in the schoolyard for example but also you know I think about Kurt Fernley talking about how once he got to engage in sport on a level that he could and when his teacher brought wheelchairs so that that leveled the playing field for the rest of his class until that point had been a point of exclusion for him. It was a thing that he was never going to have access to. And then the power of making these changes and it allowed him to not only be involved and engaged with the rest of his community, but also to excel and it gave him a whole new life. And I just think it's such an interesting thing that we have this ability in sport for it to be a place of welcome, for it to be an entree into society or for it to be a weapon to exclude. I think it's really interesting in that article that she talks about taking people from the youth hostel she was working at to the game because I've always thought it's it's often really difficult when you're travelling overseas to have those cultural moments because you don't really know 
where the entry point is for you to be able to go to a game or if it's safe even because you don't know what the culture is. And I thought that was a really interesting point, but it reminded me of how once you're even in and you love football, and this has been my experience, that for a really long time in my life, even though I loved football, it was there was still a moment within football where I was still excluded, not only because I couldn't play, but because people would challenge me on what I knew about football. In the rear view mirror, I can see how far away that is now. And I think AFLW's had a huge part to play in that. But that really isn't my experience anymore. It's, a, oh, it's such a beautiful piece, Nick. I'm so glad you brought it to us. And reading about her first experience of watching Australian rules football actually made me snort. Like it's it's so funny. <laughs> and I have to read this one line where she said, giant men in tiny shorts ripping through grammatically dubious threats on crepe paper <laughs> may be one of the greatest <laughs> descriptions <laughs> of the footy banner. And it it's so true. And when you talk about duality, I for me at the moment, footy is really a very double-edged sword because I live for the moments that the games are on and for the connection that I get via social media of everybody else watching it. I truly enjoy and love and can't wait for those moments because while I'm isolating at home, I don't get the opportunity to be in a crowd and that's become really important to me. But at the same time, I actually feel great guilt about it because you know, we're watching, you know, this big media circus and, you know, the AFL rolling into WA when there's been so many people who haven't been able to get home to see family. And, you know, I feel that guilt. It really makes me laugh that if you were from overseas, you explain that once these fierce men who don't wear any protective gear have finished playing the game, they all put their arms around each other and sing a song. (laughs) (laughs) Deep timing. How in the middle of the D song, which is brilliant, they do the line from Old Lang Syne, which is old acquaintance, acquaintance be forgot, right? <laughs> which to me reminded me of when J-Lo was singing This Land Is Your Land at the inauguration and then halfway through screamed out, let's get loud. <laughs> <laughs> like it's an original mashup. <laughs> <laughs> As with all grand finals, there's always people who miss out and it's always heartbreaking. And Nathan Jones is one person who's been talked about a lot. He flew home because his wife was due to give birth to twins and actually she did give birth today. What a week for him. Julia, you've been watching the story and the commentary around people who are missing out because it's a traditional grand final story. Yeah, it is. And I guess in the next week or so we'll we'll hear more about who's actually missing out. But the Nathan Jones one I have been watching and I think, you know, most footy fans know that he has been a huge part of Melbourne for the last, you know, over a decade and he really stood up for a long time when they weren't doing well. So the fact that he won't be able to play in the grand final is a tough one. But it's been an interesting response from the public because I think for most people, they knew that he wasn't going to be selected. He hasn't been picked for the team since I think round seven. So it wasn't like he's a line ball call. So the fact that he's chosen to fly home, not be there for the grand final has been pretty much universally 
understood by the the football public, which is great. And, you know, he's been able to beat the birth of his children. How fantastic. Much more important than a football game. I was thinking about that and, and reflecting on the instance last year when Gary Ablett flew home to be with his family. This year we had Tim Membry and Seb Ross leave the hubs, the mini hubs, to, to for family reasons and that they didn't get as universally applauded for those decisions. There was definitely, I'm sure, us on the pod would have said that that was a good decision, not across the whole of the fandom or across the the commentary. And I, I'm thinking about why that is the case. You know, why was it okay for Nathan Jones to come home and and why was it not okay for for those guys? And I guess it for me, I think it's because he wasn't an in, he wasn't playing in the team at the moment. He wasn't an integral player. Whereas those other guys were really in the top five in the team and therefore fans were so outraged that these people who they think are core part of the team and a core part of the winning strategy would, would leave. I'm wondering what that says about us. What do you guys think? Uh, makes me feel a bit sick actually, Julia, because there's humanity in the conversation, but then when people think that there's something in it for them, it's a commodity. They just want to squeeze out from a human person, everything that they can get for their own commodity. The truth is that whether you're travelling home because your your wife's about to give birth or because your child's unwell or for whatever reason it is, that's actually none of our business. Or That's all the same reason. That's all, if you need to go home, you need to go home. And what it says about us is pretty rotten, actually. I think there's a similarity with the reaction that some players get after games on social media. There's been racial abuse and there's been other very targeted vile abuse at players. There's been some discussion about whether gambling plays a part in that and in the ownership that fans feel in terms of, of telling people things that they really shouldn't say in their outside voices <laughs> or their inside voices. And it's also part of that story that we've seen this week. We talked earlier about Adam Trelaw and that there had been a lot of criticism about his game against the Lions and Luke Beveridge referred to that at the end of the game, which was interesting that, you know, coming off that massive win, that was the first thing that he spoke about and his support of Adam is clearly a top priority for him. But it made me reflect on the fact that I'm seeing more and more on in my social media feed that people are actually calling out instances where they see sports betting accounts or media accounts that lead with headlines that are quite negative and quite targeted and naming players and saying who were the three worst players or or that kind of thing. And I'm wondering whether that's I live in a bubble and I have a very well curated feed or whether we're starting to see a change. And, and I think we are. I think the conversations around mental health are starting to resonate with the football fans and with a certain section particularly of of fans and, you know, people are calling it out, which I think is really interesting. Have you noticed this? Yeah, I think there is a movement towards the player as a human being. You guys were talking about it last week as well and I, I think that there is a shift towards that but I also think we've got very bad habits and it's very deeply ingrained this sort of tribal possessiveness I am heartened by the fact that, it, that you are seeing more and more people including clubs including officials at clubs and commentators calling out this behavior rather than joining in 
It's interesting because we did talk about it last week and we were talking about Adam Sarah and how he's requested to move from Fremantle to come back home. And Lucy, we got a message this week from an Outer Sanctum listener. We did. And we just want to say hi to Adam's auntie, Jenny. Thank you for listening and thanks for being a member of the Sanctum community. And she was basically saying thank you for speaking about my nephew like a human being. I feel like it really matters when you hear from auntie Jenny and you think, well, she's sitting at home thinking, I hope Adam's okay, and that, that they're not just a commodity, they're someone's nephew. The AFL media actually really does trade a lot on the families so much, and they don't get paid for that. And so I think the least you can do is, you know, really respect the players as people and have a duty of care. It'll be interesting to see if things change. You will have noted there was a High Court decision in the last week or so that ruled that media outlets are liable for comments made by general public on any posts they make on social media. And that is also the case for public pages run by non-media organisations like small businesses or football clubs. I really hope that what we will see flowing from that is a change in some of the really vilest parts of the internet, which tends to be footy fan comment sections on Facebook. We've been talking about the fact that if you can't moderate a post, don't post, but just the volume, it's so difficult to, to police. So it'll be really interesting to see what impact those legal ramifications make. So ladies, the Brownlow is this Sunday. I have a sneaking suspicion that the Bont might win it. I'm going early and I know that there's lots of people who can win it and I know that there'll be players that take votes off him. I just have a very strong Bont vibe. The Bont probably will win because I think that there are fewer players likely to take votes from him than, say, Petrarca, Christian Petrarca, who's my quiet favourite, who's not a favourite. He's probably in the top four or five. But, you know, he's also got Clayton Oliver to compete with. You know, maybe Jack Steele's a a, a chance from St Kilda as well. I think those teams that aren't necessarily right up in the top do have that advantage of less competition in their immediate team. Lou? It's always interesting. I think when you've got two players from the teams that are going to play in the grand final, it just seems so exciting. Bont and Clayton Oliver are probably the top two. But I'll be interested to see how Darcy Parrish goes. He's one I'll be keeping my eye on. How about you, Julia? I agree with you all. I'd love to see Bont or Petrarca or Oliver win it. Sam Walsh won't have anyone stealing his votes, so um, <laughs> he might do well. I'm trying to think, who's the Shane Wo Woden of this year, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know what will be a really hotly contested award on the night will be the Jim Steins Community Leadership Award. The four finalists are just awesome individuals. Travis Boak, Georgie Rankin, Jordan Ruffhead and Nicholas Stevens. They all do incredible work in their various fields. Give them all an award. I do love how seamlessly the AFLW players have been incorporated into that award. It shows how effortlessly and easily it can happen. Should I say final business? Oh, I love it when you do. Okay. All right, ladies. Has anyone got any final beeswax, Lucy? (laughs) I love beeswax. (laughs) I do. There's been so many exciting things this week, things to celebrate. So congratulations to our dear friend, Lisa Alexander, who has been appointed the Performance Director of London Pulse. She'll also be a youth coach and a mentor for up-and-coming athletes. So we have lost her to London Mm. and I think she's already gone. 
So she'll be tweeting on different time zone to us, but we wish you well, Lisa. And a huge congratulations to Dylan Orcott, who became the first man to win the Golden Slam. So that's all four Grand Slams plus the Olympic gold medal on the weekend. And isn't he just extraordinary? He said kind of what you were saying earlier, Nicole, about, you know, when sport makes it inclusive for you and it can save you. I, to hear him talk about how tennis saved his life. I mean, that is just Imagine if he didn't get it, you know, or imagine if the, he'd never been made welcome or given mm. the opportunity to, to play in, in a wheelchair. Can you imagine, you know, the outcome would have been very, very different and it's just it, that is that power. It can it's go amazing. either way. God help me if tennis ever had to save my life. Do you know I can't serve? I can only do all the other things. <laughs> I cannot serve for the life of me. Terrible. Nicole Hayes? Lauren Jackson, Australia's probably our greatest ever basketballer, was inducted into the WNBA, the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. Now that makes her the first Australian woman and the second Australian in a US Basketball Hall of Fame. Lindsay Gaze was the first. Her record is unbelievable. And I don't think in Australia we fully appreciate how much of a star she is over in the US, where basketball is, you know, one of the prominent sports, unlike where it is here. She played for the Seattle Storm for her career. She won two championships and was named league MVP three times. That's three Brownlows, basically. And she was a seven-time All-Star. And when you think about, you know, the calibre of she's playing against people from all over the world in the WNBA, an extraordinary testament. That's without looking, obviously, at the various gold medals she's won for Australia. She truly is an international star. And congratulations to Lauren. It's it's, it's such an enormous achievement. I don't want to flex too hard, but you know that I'm friends with her now because I studied with her at the AIS and it was really I had to be really I had to be really cool she won't listen to this she's too busy but sometimes we call each other we got paired up we were we were buddies in the in the program together did you shoot some baskets together oh could you think of anything I could do worse yes (laughs) I served her some dribbles Is there anything else, Julia? What do you got? What do I got? Well, look, this is a bit of silliness, but in uh, two of the eastern states, we're all at home, and so this is a bit of silliness for you. I believe that there is a crossover fandom between Outer Sanctum fans and Sex of the City fans. Some of the Outer folk uh, have listened to a podcast called Sentimental in the City. It's fantastic. You don't really need to know the show that well. But in listening to that, I had a moment where they're describing Charlotte and they were talking about how Charlotte, um, especially in the early seasons, really cares about the optics of her relationships and she really cares about where her suitors went to college. He went to Princeton. He went to Yale. She's always name dropping the Ivy League schools. And as I was listening to that, I thought, oh, my God, James Brayshaw is the Charlotte of AFL commentary (laughs) (laughs) because he's always talking about private schools and he cares about fake things like Charlotte does. And I look forward to the sixth and seventh seasons of AFLW when he meets his Harry and he becomes 100% more tolerable. So... (laughs) In thinking about this, 
who are the other Sex in the City characters oh. that could fit into the AFA commentary? Emma, do you have any thoughts? Oh, you know, there's that online quiz that you can do to work out which <laughs> Sex in the City character you are. We need to plug in all the commentators. I guess at an early glance, and this is no, look, I'm going to have to do a real roadmap of this. I'll deep dive it during the week. But I would say Miranda is probably Jared Waitley. <laughs> I was going to go Andy Marr. <laughs> no way. Steve is Andy Marr. 100% Steve is Andy Marr. No, Miranda is probably Jared Waitley because it's that like the pseudo intellectual, but he's still talking about footy. He's the intellectual version of those people. And if I had to, I would say Samantha is probably, I want to say, I want to say Dermot Brereton. <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> because she's always like, in her own way, she's like, Five day, five night premierships. You would have ridden a <laughs> motorbike into a nightclub. Into Chase's nightclub, exactly. And flashy and showy and blonde and all that kind of stuff. And then that leaves Carrie. And that's a real struggle because mm. Car- what is Carrie? Carrie's just so nothing. She's, I mean, I kind of <laughs> hate her. So, and, and I'm not saying that I dislike this person, but I reckon she might be <laughs> Hamish McLaughlin. <laughs> I agree. Connected just to everyone. Every comment. Like, every, she's, yeah. You're supposed to see yourself her. Yeah. And everyone knows her. It's the conduit to all of the aspects of everything. You know, she can go to the polo, then she can turn up at the AFLW. She's talking to the NAB mini legends, you know, all that kind of stuff. But she's also can flip between high society and then hanging out with Jonathan Brown. <laughs> Nailed it. I can't believe you didn't think about this. <laughs> Just off the top of my head. Well, I am I think I have to do an exhaustive list and I think we'd love if people on Twitter told us who uh they think some of the um <laughs> the exterior characters might be. But I think Luke Darcy is Trey McDougal <laughs> <laughs> because he's classically handsome. You could bring him home. He has a great conversation. But Trey McDougal <laughs> was actually the brother of Gil and Hamish McLaughlin because <laughs> <laughs> it's Carl McLaughlin. He kind of looks exactly the same as them and it's all that blue blood money stuff. True. Um, but I do think that Richard Wright, who is the character, that the, the hotel mm. magnate that Samantha mm. falls in love with and who they have the disastrous relationship and the one who really breaks her, <laughs> And then she moves on and finds Smith. He's Wayne Carey. (laughs) (laughs) Someone who is beloved by men and who women do not understand the appeal. Oh, that is so true. <laughs> I feel like this is a spin-off pod. This is not a segment. <laughs> we would love to hear from anyone who has suggestions. <laughs> Thanks, Julia. Well, it's probably time for us to get out of here. A reminder that we are available to talk to you on socials throughout the week. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and we love getting reviews. We'd love some reviews before the end of the season. And and on Fridays, the fifth quarter is out. We've been loving all of your responses to the fifth quarter conversations. And last week's, yeah, was pretty intense. And lots of people were saying, I cried the whole way around the supermarket while I was on my run. Such a beautiful conversation. Well done, Nicole. It was just a lovely um, conversation with Kurt Fernley and the conversation about Afghanistan was so full on and I really hope that people will listen to it if they haven't listened to it yet. I think there's only one thing left to say, my loves, and that is... Go Go Woody! Okay.
chop up nicely, ladies. Chop, chop, give me chop. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.